House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Thanks for tuning in. Tonight we welcome to the show Phil Nelson. How are you tonight? Very good, thank you. Good. Well, thank you for being here. First of all, let's, let's tell the uh, listeners about you. Um, a little bit about you, how, how you kind of got into uh, writing the books about uh, the assassination. It was purely happenstance, actually. I mean, I have no background in journalism. I'm not, uh, I, I have no legal qualifications. I, I have no medical background. I'm an insurance guy. I was an executive at a property and casualty insurance company that for uh, a lot of different reasons no longer exists, even though it was a 100-year-old company at the time. And uh, anyway, I, between employment with uh, three, three major insurance companies over uh, about 28 years, uh, <clears throat> I spent a, a career and wound up being vice president of two of those companies. And... and um, in the end, though, I, 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 all the time I was in the, the corporate ladder, so to speak. You know, I, I read um, much of the literature on the JFK assassination, always thinking that there was something that's, that was not being very well, uh, well, it was hidden, but it wasn't being hidden very well. And that was the, what I th thought was an obvious indication that, the the, uh, the assassination of JFK was much more complicated than ever presented uh, in the official, you know, journals and 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 the Warren Commission and so forth. I I've, I always felt that there was much more to it that had to be hidden, bec and 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 eventually, as it as it um, developed over many years, actually decades. Uh, things that had been hidden in the past, as they spilt forth and become and and, and became, um, you know, uh, documented, indicated in no uncertain terms that the um, canard that was put forth by the Warren Commission, that it was all a, a lone nut assassin. A, a, a person who was uh, alleged to be a, a, a lone nut that is, you know, without friends or uh, other connections, suddenly deciding to, to kill the President of the United States simply didn't make sense. And all of that was, was defined by, by the early researchers, uh, all the way from Sylvia Mayer to to uh, Harold Weisberg and so forth, and Mark uh, Lane, many others who, who wrote books back in the 60s, and not always just about the assassination. What I came to find out after I retired from the insurance industry and, and was able to delve into some of these older books was that, was that a lot of people were finding out things back in the 60s that pointed the finger at, well, Lyndon Johnson and 
uh, on some of the people that he was connected with. There was a German author, for example, uh, Joachim Josten, who who uh, who wrote the dark side of Lyndon Johnson back in 1966 or 67. There was there was another guy uh, named J. Evans uh, Haley, who who wrote uh, another book, A Texan Looks at Lyndon, and and sh and showed, but both of them and many others. That's just two of many. Both showed that that he had um, a very checkered past. That that he was not above criminal conduct to to achieve election victories and and uh, all kinds of campaign finance irregularities were going on. All all of that was documented back then. That there were there were life uh, that that is there were magazines. Life magazine and Look magazine and McCall's all had articles written in the early 60s, some even back in the 50s, which indicated that Lyndon Johnson had a history of criminal conduct. And even when I was in high school, this was in 1961 and 62, there were stories that came out about this newly elected vice president that didn't make any sense. That, that uh, for instance, in mid-February of 1961, there was a, a story that was announced at, a, at my high school <clears throat> that uh, indicated that the there was an airplane crash on the LBJ Ranch down in Texas. And that was a little odd, right in the middle of English class, to have a PA system broadcast this news. And then it went on to say, though, the interesting part was that it was this had happened back on the previous Friday. So here for three days, there was no mention of it in any of the news broadcasts. Then suddenly, here it was uh, broadcast that there was this this uh, bizarre airplane crash on the LBJ Ranch. The vice president he had only been vice president for about six weeks at that point, but that. For some reason, it had not been announced three days ago when it happened. It took three days to to finally get around to announcing it, and and then even then, matters didn't make a whole lot of sense. For for days, it, the story kept developing that well, the airplane, you know, was wasn't really his. He had somehow borrowed it, and then the story kept shifting around about he was going to buy it and. The ownership of the airplane wasn't real clear. Uh, just stories like that. It was it was just um, troubling. Let's put it that way. Hmm. And 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 but then the announcement was followed up by well, but don't don't be alarmed. Our vice president is safe and unhurt. Unfortunately, the the two pilots were killed immediately. Uh, you know, <laughs> just just odd stories like that. Well, it turns out that the reason they were killed, that we know now, was that Johnson had ordered them to land that airplane in fog at his his airstrip that had been built by taxpayer dollars, by the way, on his private ranch, just because he was the vice president. And so we have an air, airport that we put in at taxpayer expense in his on his ranch and and yet it 
it wasn't equipped with instruments to help guide an airplane in in a, in a deep fog, in a dense fog. And as a result, they tried to, to land an airplane without being able to see where they were landing. And they ran it right into the ground and killed them both instantly because Lyndon Johnson ordered them to do it. Hmm. And the reason he ordered them to do it was, was so that he could fly up to Midland, Texas and meet with Billy Celestis in order to, uh, to uh, execute you know, a criminal conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States of millions and millions of dollars so that he and Estes could make that money and, and become rich. And, and that's, that's what we know now. You know, you, when you start there, when you start with all of this criminal activity and, and how he won that Senate, Senate uh, seat in the first place through more criminal activity, well, then you know you've got a criminal on your hands. And, and so everything else sort of falls into place. And all a whole series of murders that we now know happened at his behest, they, they, were, all, they were all set up basically because these people had gotten in his way. And, and they had, you know, the audacity to, to do things to uh, possibly inhibit his ability to become president of the United States, which is what he had sworn himself to achieve since he was a child. When he was 12 years old, 12 years old he, he swore that he would become president of the United States. And that's what he, that was his life. His life was dedicated to this obsession, a constant obsession of becoming president. And, he, and, and, and as Robert Caro himself said, and no man and no principal could stand before him, he was going to be president. And, and uh, unfortunately, John F. Kennedy was one of the people who got in his way, and um, he had to be eliminated. I'm convinced of that. Nick, how did he end up being the vice president on the ticket there? Uh, through his association with uh, his long-term friendship with J. Edgar Hoover, the then head of the FBI, and, and, and a man who at that time was respected throughout the country. And that's, that's really his, was his ace in the hole, to have a friend that, who, was, who was as compromised as he was who was as evil and who was, who was not, uh, you know, uh, not constrained by ethics or laws because each of them were powerful narcissists. They were megalomaniacs. And I'm, these words are coming from not me, but psychiatrists and psychologists that I've quoted. As I said before, I do not have that medical background. But you don't have to have a medical background to understand these principles, especially when you can cite sources who have those credentials. And, and basically, they have, they have stated that, that he was a sociopath. The words they've used are sociopath, a narcissist, megalomania, uh, bipolar disorder, paranoia. All of those things combined on both sides, psych psychiatric and psycho psychological. When you combine them all, then you've got a pretty powerful mix of of attributes that you know can uh, result in a, a criminal conduct.
And, and, and basically what it means is that as a sociopath or a narcissist, that, that means the person who has those tendencies has no guilt complex to deal with. In other words, they can do just about whatever they want to do and not feel guilty about it. And in the layman's terms, again, you know, that's what it means. And, and when he combined with Jagger Hoover, who, by the way, had, he had moved in to be his neighbor back in 1943. Actually, it was 41 or 42. I think it's 1942. He bought a house right across the street, one house down or across the street from Jagger Hoover. I contend that he did that with the intention of becoming so close to Hoover that he could tap into Hoover and have the resources of Jagger Hoover, the, the head of the FBI, <clears throat> at his beck and call. And that's exactly what happened. Now, now, the only speculation in that whole thing that I just said was that my contention is he did that for that very purpose 20 years before. Whether he did or not is immaterial. The fact is, that's what happened. So by 1961 and 62, he had Hoover under his wing all along. And so in 1960, when they, when they went to the Los Angeles Convention, the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles, Hoover was there, along with a lot of us, uh, Johnson's other friends. And, and by the way, he, he had not campaigned for the presidency. A lot, of, a lot of people assumed he had, but he had not. In fact, he resisted it. Up until five days before that convention, he had not been a candidate to, to, be, to be president. And the reason was he, he, he wanted, he, he wanted to um, minimize the risk of, I guess, overexposure and, and minimize the risk of actually losing in the nomination process to this very popular young Senator John F. Kennedy. It was also his inflated ego, a very fragile ego. That, that he had to deal with. And, and he knew that if, if, if he were to lose, either in the primary or the general election, well, that would just shatter that ego, and it would be the end of his political career and therefore the end of his quest to become president. As I said before, his numero uno, reason de terre, the reason he existed, was to become president of the United States. That's, that was from his childhood. So, so here we are in 1960. He he uh, showed up out there and and finally declared his candidacy five days before the opening date of that convention, and and he did so in a very awkward way, in a very in a very threatening way to Kennedy. He was actually intimidating Kennedy from the from all that. Well, for months before that, but 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 here. In Los Angeles, he, he was spreading the word out there among the um, Democratic um, delegates to the convention that JFK had serious uh, problems, uh, medical problems, and you, you better be careful about voting voting for him on that first ticket. He he was he was playing a game, so to speak, to to 
to make sure that, that Kennedy was off guard, that, that Kennedy was very concerned about what Johnson was up to. But, and, and in the end, he, he, uh, after, after Kennedy won the nomination on the first ballot, just w within hours, Johnson and Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, called him and, and told him they needed to meet immediately to discuss what, what was going to go on then. And, and subsequent to that, in the late hours of, of uh, that evening, after Kennedy accepted the nomination, they met with him and they threatened him. They used blackmail and they used threats. The threats were, if, if you don't put Lyndon on as the vice president, then he would become the biggest impediment to Kennedy's domestic agenda that, that ever existed, that, that he would get no legislation through. And, and Kennedy had already extended the invitation to become the vice president to Stuart Symington, a senator from Missouri. And this is all in Cliff, uh, Clifford, uh, Clark's, pardon me, Clark Clifford's memoirs. He wrote a, he wrote his, a lengthy memoir, and, uh, I think it was in the early 90s. Now, Clark Clifford had, had been a very respected, um, aide and, and, um, associate of, of Harry Truman, and then, uh, John F. Kennedy, and then, and he, he uh, Therefore, was then recruited by Johnson to to be, become part of his administration as well. So, but this is probably one of the most respected of all of the the men who served in these administrations. And he said in his in his book that that uh, Stuart Symington had been given the nomination or the invitation to become the vice president. And in the middle of the night. All this other meeting happened between Linda Johnson and Sam Rayburn, and with the information from Jagger Hoover, it was was presented to to uh, JFK as and as as an ultimatum, and so by the next morning, JFK rescinded the the uh, offer to Symington via Clark Clifford, Clark Clifford, and and. Uh, Offered it, therefore, under threat to Lyndon Johnson. And at this point, you have to ask yourself, was Lyndon Johnson ever really seriously planning to run for president as the president, as, as the top name on that ticket? And the answer, I think, is a resounding no. He never did that. He, he, he always wanted to be there as the second, as the vice president. And with the intent of making himself the next person on on the ticket so that he would automatically become president in the event that John F. Kennedy died during office. And and uh, and then he set out to make sure that that, that would happen. Uh, that's the contention of my book, and that's the reason I call him the mastermind, because only he, with all of his connections through, throughout the federal bureaucracy, throughout the Texas state and, and the Dallas uh, political and uh, police and the judicial machinery down there. He had connections throughout all of that. And he was regarded throughout all of that 
as as a very dangerous man. You know, I've quoted people who have called him that uh, at that time, had called him that at that time, and uh, so he was a very formidable formidable candidate. Uh, he he basically suckered JFK into giving him that, into giving him the nomination for um, vice president. And basically, JFK, I contend, essentially signed his death warrant in, in acceding to Johnson's threats and blackmail. So you, so you think he had that in mind when he was setting himself up to be vice president? Absolutely. I do. Absolutely, I do. And, and the, with the, you know, it, it gets pretty complicated to, to uh, talk extemporaneously on it. That's why I put it all in the book, and, and I think that it comes across uh, fairly convincingly to most people. Do you think Kennedy had any inkling of this at all, like later on, um, after they started? I, that's a good question. I, I think that uh, JFK never really properly assessed um, Johnson's willingness to commit criminal act, acts, uh, especially murder. I don't think it, he, he, he really he realized just what a um, megalomaniac and sociopath he had, he had there. But however, I, I, I do believe that over time, as a matter of fact, it's, it's evidenced by the fact that the records cut by his secretary, JFK's secretary, El, Evelyn Lincoln, her records indicated that the amount of uh, face-to-face time that Johnson spent with Kennedy decreased every month and throughout the first for, for those two and a half years that they were they were in that um, administration together. Uh, every year he spent less and less time, and he was and every year Kennedy put him on an airplane to send him off somewhere else to to go to some other funeral and, or, or whatever around the world, just to uh, try to, to uh, keep, him o- keep him occupied and out of his own hair. Uh, it, but in the meantime, I believe that Johnson had, was working with uh, some of his contacts through back channels, so to speak, with the, the people he knew very closely in the Pentagon, and, and at the CIA, uh, as well as uh, FBI, you know, his buddy uh, Jagger Hoover, as well as James Rowley, uh, a, a very close associate of Hoover, who was put in charge of the Secret Service. He had contacts throughout all these people, as well as back in Texas. And in my second book, by the way, I'm just going to take a little aside here and say, in the second book about that's titled LBJ from Mastermind to the Colossus, that the first chapter of that book addresses a, a situation with um, the Texas Ranger, Clint Peoples, who, who pursued uh, Johnson's criminal acts for 30-some years. He he was he was on to him. He knew what he was up against, however, because Johnson had made sure that all of his crimes were were kept 
you know, two to three layers uh, uh, insulated from him, from himself, so that they, they would always have the deniability factor, you know, plausible deniability going on. And, and as a result, uh, you know, he was able to, to keep his associations with Billy Saul Estes and Bobby Baker and, and other, other uh, of, a, of his criminal contacts separated from himself. And he was never, so he was never really labeled on a legal basis with an association with Billy Saul Estes or, for that matter, Bobby Baker. However, it was always there. And, and it was, in fact, it was there in newspapers throughout the United States in, uh, th between March of 1962 and September of 1962. You could look probably at any newspaper in the, in the country, as long as you looked at enough. I mean, I'm not saying every day, but certainly, you know, uh, frequently, every week or whatever, there was a story in there that was tied, that tied Linda Johnson to Billy Saul Estes. Yet the biographers, the, the, the primary and the uh, most famed biographers of LBJ don't mention that at all. Hundred, hundreds of articles I'm talking about, Whoa. major articles that, that tie them to, together, not only during this time, but even after when, when Billy Celestis went to trial. Uh, and and the, it was a, the courtroom was filled with, with photographers, with cameramen, with, with reporters. It was a circus. It was essentially a circus when, when he finally went to trial. And uh, I think it was in October of 1962. And these biographers have just missed that completely. Except for Robert Dalek. He had a couple of paragraphs in there. But then he just finished it off by saying, ah, Estes was not credible. Well, Estes was credible. And that is not coming from Phil Nelson. That, that is coming from U.S. Ranger, Texas, uh, Texas Ranger, Clint Peoples, who later became a U.S. Marshal. And it was him. And that whole chapter is about 40 pages in that chapter that, that, that summarizes... Uh, this this fellow uh, Tex, uh, the, the Ranger Clint Peoples, and then U.S. Marshal later, uh, and his 35-year-long pursuit of Lyndon Johnson. It's not something you can just make up. This happened, and but the problem is, he was up against the juggernaut of the Johnson people, and one of those people was a uh, a U.S. attorney down in Texas who put himself in a position of, of protecting the, the files that were presented to a 1962 grand jury that was, that was uh, put together by Ranger Peoples to, to reverse the finding of suicide that had been assigned to the murder of this fellow uh, named Henry Marshall. Henry Marshall was a uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, I guess you'd call him an extension agent. In other words, he was he worked in Texas, but he worked under the Department of Agriculture, and his job was to see that the rules were being followed in, re in relation to, uh, I'm going to specifically talk about cotton allotments. 
And back then, there was a surplus, huge surplus of cotton, and the government decided we're going to have price supports. Congress voted all these price supports in, so you had subsidies for cotton farmers, but the catch was they could not ex expand the uh, ground or the, the acreage that, that they were allowed to, to plant in cotton. Well, Estes figured out a way to get around some of that, and, and so he, he started following. They were just building the interstate highway system throughout the south, southeast, southwest at that time. And so he went around for all the farmers who, who had land uh, expropriated for, for that, um, well, you know, with the, um, the other term for, for when the government takes over the land. I, I, can't, I can't think of the term right now, but uh, when, when they lost land to that, they were able to reassign that acreage through certain rules, if they were actually able to replace it with land nearby, then they could they could take that land and put that cotton allotment on this other land. The long and short of it was that that uh, Estes figured out a way to have have these farmers who lost that cotton allotment reassign that acreage to him if he bought it. But then, so he he set up with hundreds, thousands of these farmers to buy their land with the understanding that they didn't have to pay him a dime, that he would simply, he, he would simply foreclose on their land and, and uh, take it, basically gain it himself, put the acreage allotment for the cotton on that land and be able to, to, uh, to uh, plant and, and harvest all kinds of cotton. Now I don't want to get so deep in the woods, uh, the weeds on on that one, but uh, there there's some complex transactions going on here that enabled the two of them, Estes and Johnson, to basically defraud the government of millions of dollars. That's the important point you got to understand. That's what it was all about. They were defrauding the government of millions of dollars through these schemes. Well, here's Henry Marshall standing in the middle of that and he was he was not going to allow that to happen he was following the rules you know that that he had been given to to follow and he was trying to do his job well the result was that that he was standing in the way and so finally johnson uh, told his men that you know he's he's got to go and that was uh, that was the phrase he used but they knew what it meant it meant he had to you know go permanently, forever, and be gone. In other words, he had to be killed. Yeah. But throughout this, he, 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 whenever he ordered someone to be eliminated, it was always couched in that kind of wording, that he's got to go. And they, so they knew that, and they made sure it happened. Yeah, so, so this, is what he, this is the way he conducted his whole life. Uh, and Henry Marshall was only one of them. Uh, there were many people who were eliminated. In fact, there were there were at least a half a dozen that were related to this one, just this one um, device, this this thing that he had with uh, Billy Solaces. So all the, all these people were were being killed, and uh, and they were all being ruled as suicide or it was an accident, and and that just kind of followed him around. 
And that's a situation that existed back in 1962, and and Life magazine was reporting on it, and and it was part of the reportage was that the Kennedys were onto him, and the Kennedys were determined that he would not be on the 1964 ticket. They were going to get rid of him. There's no question about that. And I've documented that umpteen different times from all kinds of different people in the first book. The subject is LBJ and the Kennedy assassination, the guest, Phil Nelson, and we'll return right after these words. Okay, Phil, now when we left, we were talking a little bit about the uh, vice presidency, and so what was the biggest problem with Johnson? The problem, of course, Johnson, in Johnson's case, as, as he, as I indicated before, being a, a of a, a very conflicted mind and also a, a deluded mind, uh, for all the reasons I said before, uh, from and, and that's documented from other people who have the expertise that I acknowledge I, that I do not, but they have indicated. That, that that he had deluded himself, he could make himself believe in anything. That is something that's a refrain that, that I've, if I've seen it once, I've seen it dozens of times from people who knew him, who worked with him, who were aged to him. He could make himself self-believe in anything, whether or not it was had any element of truth in it. If he determined, if, if he decided that that was going to be the truth, then he would just make it, the truth, and call it the truth, and and uh, pursue it accordingly. It was, it was pretty scary what what was happening to us as a country during that period of time, and most of us didn't have an inkling that this was going on. Yet, yet there were people in his own administration that knew it. They had seen him in meltdown, in psychotic meltdowns all along the way here. And that's the most troubling of all of this. So why do you think that no one ever came forward or it never came out? Or um... Well, I'll tell you why. Because as, uh, as a matter of fact, it's, it's in a book by Richard Goodwin. It was written in 1988, Remembering America. He has a 24-page chapter all about what was really going on in the White House and and that's that's one source. I'm not saying that's the only source, but that is one excellent source for for an insight into what was really going on within Johnson's mind and within his administration. Because Richard Goodwin was one of the his top aides that he had inherited briefly from um, JFK. However, Goodwin soon became so uncomfortable working around Johnson that he decided he, that wasn't for him, and within two or three years he was out of there. Uh, you know, that is, he resigned and went on. As a matter of fact, he then signed on to uh, first Eugene McCarthy, uh, the campaign in 1968. He was, uh, he was bound and determined to do everything he could uh, to uh, unseat Johnson in 1968. And and he wound up after after Bobby his his friend Bobby Kennedy finally got in the race, and then he 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 was a supporter of of him. Uh, so in that book, you can find all kinds of 
indications of what was really going on and the fact that Bill Moyers, now here's a guy who hasn't really said too much about, and this is the paradox here, contrast what we all know that Bill Moyers has said on practically every subject under the sun on his PBS radio radio programs and so forth, the Moyers and Company and all that for decades. He hasn't really spoken much at all about life in the White House. And there's there's an interesting reason for that, I think. Because some of what he said, what he told Richard Goodwin, and, and what appears in Richard Goodwin's book, came from Bill Moyers. And Bill Moyers d- described um, scenes where he, he saw uh, Lyndon Johnson hold up in bed for days at a time, uh, where he had uh, drunk himself into a stupor and, and uh, would just lay there in bed, looking at the ceiling and just uh, lashing out anybody who walked in the room. And that was him in meltdown, sort of. That was just one of the many scenes that I've recreated in the in the two books that I've written. And uh, that's that's troubling. I mean, these guys saw what was going on. They knew that the country was being run by, and this is layman's term, my own term, uh, a lunatic. That was that's what was going on back in those days when. When you had, uh, rev, you know, uh, riots around the country, even uh, in 1965, of course, it was Watts, and in 1966, 67, and 68, you had riots throughout all the major cities: Baltimore, Washington, Detroit, uh, <laughs> everywhere around the country, and they were all rioting because of of uh, what was perceived by most rational people as just a you know a ridiculous situation we we had a, a a war that couldn't be explained by anybody you know logically and rationally about what was the united states interest over there in the first place and 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 we you had you had all kinds of even military officers now i'm quoting in both books but but even more in the second book because i really go into vietnam on that after all the second book is about his administration. The first book was about how he got to be the president. But in his administration, you know, he, he was he was running the, the country in ways that um, defied, you know, rational explanation. How, there was no how other was, way to run. How did his wife and, and family then deal with that? Like, um, if he's like uh, laid up in bed and doing all this, do they not sort of interact with him very much or what? No, they... Uh, well, I think uh, Lady Bird was probably his biggest enabler. I mean, she, she knew his condition, and and there are some people I've talked to who are convinced that she was as much a part of the conspiracy as he was. Now, I I haven't really drawn any any uh, conclusions about that, and I, I'm not going to. I'd, I'd rather not. Speculate on that because that would that would really be speculation, you see. Because what I've written, I don't think is I don't think it can be regarded as speculation because I'm citing other people, who, credible people, all along the way for every really every, every scenario that I've covered here in two books, each of which have around 650 pages. That's a total of 1,300 pages. 
of uh, documented um, scenarios of where where these things exist. And so it's not like I'm making anything up here. Now, I do admit that some of it has to do with connecting dots, making logical conclusions, you know, formed from past behaviors into future. But but there there was a progression, a sad and um, bloody progression from Dallas through Memphis, 1968, when Martin Luther King was killed, and Los Angeles two months later, and then, and and just before that happened, by the way, when Robert F. Kennedy was killed in Los Angeles on uh, June the 5th of 1968, just before that, in March, March 15th of 1968, let's go back to March 15th of 1968, is, is when the New Hampshire primary occurred, and uh, Johnson barely squeaked by, but essentially he lost to Eugene McCarthy, the peace candidate. And, and from that point on, he, he knew that he was in big trouble, and he knew that Bobby Kennedy wanted to join the race. He knew that for months. He was worried about that. That was the thing that was really con of a concern to him because he, he knew that if Bobby Kennedy ever became president, his, his sorry story that, and that whole mythical business of the Warren Report would be exposed for what it was, a lie, because he knew that Bobby Kennedy was out to get to the truth. So that when two weeks later, Two, two weeks, well, excuse me, go back to March 15th. Two, two days later, after that, Bobby Kennedy then officially entered, entered the race. So now we advance two more weeks to March 31st. That's when Johnson came on television and announced to the world that, you know, he just decided that he, the job is too much for him and, and he has to resign and so forth. So he resigned. He, he announced that he was not run again. I shall not seek and I shall not accept the nomination to be your president. And the world rejoiced, believe me. At least all the people I knew <laughs> who were rejoicing when that news happened. But what happened, though, one must ask themselves, why would he do that at that point? Yeah, why would he give up so, so easily? Yeah, well, one answer might be that because he knew that something was going, something bad was going to happen to Robert Kennedy, and he wanted to be out of the picture. He wanted to have his name removed as a contender for the very office that Robert Kennedy had just announced that he wanted to pursue. And it would have been bad form for him to stay there and as president and continue running because then he would have a motive you see so for for and 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 people would start pointing at him as they had been doing by the way for the last 3 or 4 years in relation to the JFK assassination it, it, it wasn't just me I, I was still unconvinced at that point but there were a lot of people 
And I just mentioned some names of some of them. Um, the, the, the German historian uh, Joachim Josten was one of them, saying, you know, pointing the finger directly at Lyndon Johnson. And, and you know, a lot of people in Dallas, Texas, and I know a lot of people down there, and they all say that there was this persistent rumor about that. And a lot of people in Washington, by the way, also had had that notion that there was some a lot there's too many things that defied explanation and and there were too many reasons to suspect Johnson's involvement uh, and so anyway here, here it is in 1968 let's go back to that there and Robert Kennedy had just announced he was going to run for president two weeks later Johnson announced he's not going to rerun for for the office uh, and and bowed out. So that was March 31st, and then um, a week later, not even a week, uh, five days later, Martin Luther King gets gets killed in Memphis. And in my second book, I, I've I've covered that in pretty excruciating detail as to why. Uh, Johnson and Martin and uh, J. Edgar Hoover had their hands all over that. And then in chapter six of the new book, I, I'm covering the Robert F. Kennedy assassination in Los Angeles just a few weeks later on June the 5th. And why all these pa same patterns, the same patterns that existed in, in Dallas and in Memphis, here they are repeated again in Los Angeles. There's, there can be no doubt, I think, at this point, that the, the three major assassinations of the 1960s were all guided by Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. And it's, it hurts me to say that, and it, and it was a, took a long time to come to grips with it. But I, the books that I've written kind of uh, explain all the reasons why that that is the only reasonable explanation for all of that and for all of the things that have um, happened to the to us as a country since then yeah it's had a tremendous effect and um, very disheartening isn't it it is it's it's troubling it's it's difficult to to come to grips with what I believe had has gone on in our country because actually I'm I came from a very conservative, you know, Republican-type background, and uh, I don't, uh, wh whatever my background is, by the way, for, for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, is one thing. But where I am now has no bearing on that, and, it, and, and I, I refuse to be labeled in any fashion other than being an independent. If you want to call me an independent, have at it. But I will not be called a, a liberal or a conservative. I will not be called a Republican or a Democrat, because I think that both sides and all of that just is too. It's it's too confusing now, and um, well, it has no I, real I, meaning. Yeah, it, it is. I, you're right. It it has lost its traditional meanings, and uh, you know whatever it is, the country is now in such horrific shape, and a lot of it is attributable to this very subject we're talking about. Uh, and until, you know, there's a cleansing of the consciousness that I think this is going to persist. Subject tonight, the JFK assassination.
LBJ, and the guest, Phil Nelson. At the time, Kent, Mrs. Kennedy thought about all this. Did she have a relationship with uh, LBJ? She had a superficial relationship. You can hear um, radio or, uh, telephone conversations where she's sort of giddy and when she talks to him because she, she knows that's what he's looking for. And yet we've heard enough from other sources that indicate that that was, that was all it was. It was just a front and that she suspected him all along. And, and there's been a lot of reports in the last few years, uh, some from European sources and some basically Kennedy insiders, but no one of uh, no, no no one of the major Kennedy, you know, uh, family members has come out with with um, any comments re related to Lyndon Johnson. However, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did speak in Dallas in January of 2013 with his uh, sister. Um, I believe her name is Carrie or Corey, uh, but anyway, uh, they they appeared in with Charlie Rose of all people in Dallas, and uh, although some of that interview was shown, just cl clips of it, the whole interview has never been shown that I know of. But yet they they made an appearance there, and 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 they uh, they had a a lengthy interview. So whatever became of that, I, I don't know. But enough has been said um, on the periphery and, and in other reports, some sort of unsubstantiated and some sort of saying that some of this came from Caroline, but she held back because she she didn't want, you know, her, her mother's personal um, affairs uh, becoming public and so forth. There, there are all kinds of reasons the Kennedys have held back on on laying it all out and so I, I I don't know anything about all that and I, I do hope that someday someone will realize that it's about time we get to the bottom of all this and and uh, and make uh, Jackie Kennedy's real feelings available my understanding is that she had lengthy interviews with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. where she basically told him that that, that she felt that Lyndon Johnson was behind it. So uh, until those are, are released, I guess we'll, we'll never know. I guess there's a hold on all the files for a number of years, isn't there? Like private. You know, that was the very first thing that caused me back in 1964 to start questioning what in the world was going on. Because here they were on the one hand, led by Johnson, of course, saying it was a lone nut, just some screwball, you know, um, misinformed and maladjusted commie guy down there that decided he's, he's going to murder the president uh, and up and did it. That was the story. And as implausible as it was then, it really became ridiculous when at the, the very same people in the government announced that, well, we have to put all this on hold and, and we're going to put it, bury it for 75 years. Everything was going to be 
buried for 75 years initially. And it, and it didn't, that didn't change until uh, Oliver Stone's movie JFK came out in 1991. And in 1992, Congress reacted and, and voted unanimously that all of those restrictions are now, you know, uh, going to be replaced. And you've got you've to make the, the law that was passed, the JFK Records uh, Retention Act, whatever it's called, stated that all government agencies had to go back and release all the information regarding the assassinations, not just of JFK, but the others, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. They had to be released, uh, you know, as quickly as possible. I, I don't remember exactly what all the deadlines were, but the the last deadline, after all of the all of that happened, it, it finally, cer certain records started being released and, and it opened up a lot of new areas for um, research. Uh, and, and that's been the result of, you know, the, the passage of that legislation. The problem is uh, the, the final date was, is now set for 2017. It had been 20, uh, I believe... Um, it was originally uh, 2039, I believe it was. Anyway, it was moved back to 2017, and now everything is supposed to be released. The question is, how much is left that will be meaningful? You know, is anybody's guess? But that's where we are today. You know, it's been all this time, and and even though it was just this supposedly just this uh, lone commie nut case. You know, it was. It never made sense to anybody to have all of, all of the data, all the records, frozen and put aside and made secret for seventy-five years, which is what it originally was. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, obviously, you don't believe in uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did it or was involved, or do you? No, no, I don't believe that he was. Um, he 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 might have been involved in the periphery, but unbeknownst to him, that he was going to be the patsy. When it when it came down, then he quickly realized he was the patsy, and that's what he even said, you know, on, on national television right. uh, as he was being arrested and so forth that he was just a patsy. Uh, but he was clearly not in the sixth floor. He he was he was down, you know, on the uh, the main floor of the Texas School Book Depository and had been out on the on the um the front portico watching it, uh watching the procession, but but then he as soon as it went by, he went back back inside and and he was, he was uh, then found there uh, just a minute or two later by the police uh who the one policeman in particular came running in there and and uh, encountered him. He was drinking a Coke and it had not been out of breath, had not had any sign that he had had to rush down and you know from his the sniper's purse, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, all, from from that point there, I mean, 
people tried to rationalize that. They rationalized this, they rationalized that, and nothing made sense when you really put it together. Uh, yet there are many people out there who still believe it by God because that's what the government said. Well, yeah, you got to get real at some point. Do you have an idea of who sh who actually did the shooting? Do you think it was like James Files who claims he did? Oh my or? gosh! You know that's that's uh, it's been <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that that that's that's something that I had I have not really explored that much because t to me that doesn't matter as much as who was behind it. Okay, the the actual shooters could have been anybody, and there were a lot of people who've since confessed and, and they, they want you to believe that they were the shooters. And it might have been James Files. I just don't know. And I, I'd rather not comment on that because uh, that that's a real rabbit hole there. There are so many people who who could could probably be tagged, but until we know more about a lot of stuff, that that's kind of beyond my frame of reference. Yeah. So now, uh, on your second uh, book on the subject, you're talking more about how LBJ continued on and kind of what happened uh, after the assassination. Um, uh, so do you think he got what he wanted by being president? Well, certainly he, he achieved um, the, you know, the, um, the office, which is what he had always sworn that he would, he would do. And then along the way, in addition to that, see, that became a daily mantra for him. It had to. He, he, he repeated it often enough to other people that it was pretty obvious that it was a mantra for himself. Uh, and um, somewhere along the way, he decided that it wasn't enough just to be another president. He wanted to be the considered right up there with the greatest presidents of all time and specifically Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Donor Roosevelt. And in order to do that, of course, both of them were were partly famous because they were great wartime presidents. He had to be a wartime president. And so Vietnam was right there. And and it worked out nicely for him because he, he saw the opportunity there to, to not only <clears throat> engage in a nice little war that he he thought he could control from from the uh, Oval Office or the Situation Room, the way that that he could drag it out and and manage it and and try to appease the military people who were trying to to explain to him that he had to commit more resources and more munitions and more of this and that, more of that. But he, he was, so, so he had warned all of them along the way, don't, don't request more than you, uh, than you need or actually cut your requests in half, so to speak, because that's all you're going to get anyway. So, so he, he always, he had to, to, to temper what they requested with what he thought the political reality would allow him to do. And, and so he, he cut all the requests every single time. Uh, yet he still allowed the buildup, the escalation, to go from the 16,000 that he, so as he put it, he inherited 
course, they were they were not combat troops. They were they were just advisors. He never mentioned that. But, but as soon as he had the keys to the to the uh, Oval Office, they he, he turned that into combat troops, and and of course all of the um, material and so forth that, that had been requested. So suddenly, in the next couple of years, everything increased uh, exponentially, and um, so so we we wound up with five hundred thousand troops there at a time. We we moved uh, three million guys in and out of there. Well, some of them didn't make it out, as we know, right. fifty eight thousand officially. But that number is far greater than that, by the way. It's, it doesn't count all the people who, who contracted this uh, diseases because of Agent Orange or whatever else. And so they came back and then they died. Well, their names didn't make it onto the wall. So the 58,000 that are on the wall, that's, that's a large part of it, but there were a lot more than that. Okay, so maybe we ought to start at 100,000, you know, if, if you want to count all of that. And then I happen to personally know people who uh, made it back. And in one case, this this fellow uh, from my hometown back in Indiana, he, he made it back for a couple of months, and then he died. And then the week after he died, his mother uh, drove her car at 75 miles an hour into a concrete bridge abutment, killed herself as a result. So I even count people like that. I mean, right. w- without this monster who have created this idiotic war for, for his own personal pecuniary and, and financial, or financial and political purposes. He, he did it for his own personal reasons, is what I'm, is what I'm uh, saying and, and what, I, what I believe I have documented. And, uh, but it was through exploitation of, of people's uh, the patriotism. If if you live through that, then you would know what I mean. Yeah. That he exploited the patriotism of Americans. He was the, the first one who who set people apart by do you support me or do you not? And if you didn't, well then you were of course you know not very patriotic. <laughs> yeah. That's... It, it it set up the whole counterculture, and so if if people don't believe my views of things. All you have to do is consider the obvious. What happened as a result of all this? You had a whole counterculture of people going out and, and, and rioting and, and well you had a you had a guy named William Ayers who 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 went all the way to the extreme of bombing the Pentagon and bombing Congress and then he and then getting let off by the fact that uh, the FBI because of this guy, Jagger Hoover, overreacted to that and did things that were contrary to the Constitution of the United States. And as a result, William Ayers gets off scot-free, and he, gets, he goes to Illinois and, get, and goes to uh, Northwestern and is a college professor. Well, that's what I call the counterculture. He, he, it was called the Weathermen back in those days. And the SDS and all the things that he was and others were associated with, the violent reactions and the rioting that caused what was commonly called the counterculture. All, all that happened because of Lyndon Johnson and what he did and lying 
all the way through. So p- people accuse me of, of uh, still being angry about it. Yeah, you're damn right I am. I'm still angry about it. And I'll continue to be angry about it probably till the day I die. Be- be- because so many people just want to just gloss over it and just say, well, hell, I don't see any of this in Robert Caro's book. Of course you don't see it in Robert Caro's book because Robert Caro chose not to go there. There's nothing. He, he's written four books on, on Lyndon Johnson, and not one of those books has anything to do. His name, Billy Solestis, this name, Billy Solestis, is not cited in any of the four books that Robert Caro has written. Now, how do you explain that? He, he was in every newspaper in the country in 1962, Estes was. But you won't find that in Caro's books. No, he was there to um, make him look pretty, right? And I've covered this in quite a, a lot of detail, actually, in the second book, the Colossus book, because that's where I, I have a little more freedom to go back and look at, at uh, the administration and, and everything that's happened since then. And I, I start with um, some of the other authors who have chosen to just, you know, uh, ignore things that are in right uh, that should not have been ignored. Let's put it that way. That we're in when when, when you have stories in every major and even minor newspapers throughout the whole country in 1962 that are not to be found anywhere in these books, these biographies, so-called biographies of Lyndon Johnson. When there's something terribly wrong with that, that it shows me that there are truths that are being buried because they're not, they don't, they do not comport with the paradigm that is being built about Lyndon Johnson and, and calling him a great president. He was not a great president. He he was the most destructive president, the most evil untrustworthy president that we've ever had, and we're still recovering from it, trying to recover from it. In, in my new book, also, uh, I, I go into not just the Vietnam quagmire, as it's been called, but another even stranger and more reckless and more uh, flagrant, I don't, I don't know, there's a lot of different descriptive words I could use here, but when you have a president of the United States deciding that as a way to assuage the, the, um, the negative polls or the people who um, he, he, he believes have not given him enough support, I'm specifically referring to the fact that in 1967 and 68, well, throughout, as Johnson heard the uh, protesters across the street in Lafayette Park. Every night they were saying, chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Well, his response to that was to, to try to portray himself as being very much you know, emotionally caught up in the need to you know, express some regret about the, the lives of these uh, kids that that he was um, sacrificing in Vietnam, and what what he um, 
came up with was he, he felt many of these, these guys over there were Jewish people. And he, he thought that was just awful, that, he didn't, that they didn't see uh, that all the good things he was trying to do for Israel and all this time, and, and, and he was upset about it. And this is not something I'm just dreaming up. This is something, if, if anybody cares to look into it, read Joseph Califano's book, his own memoirs. And he goes into this in quite a bit of detail. And not just him, a lot of books do that. I, these other books are cited throughout my book. It, it's not, these are not made up things I just threw out there. So the point is, he he um, he decided that that a good way to try to repair the damage with his Jewish constituency, especially in New York, but Miami, Los Angeles, and other Chicago and everywhere else, of course, but especially in New York, because that's where his major financial backers from uh, that community existed. Abraham Feinberg was one, and Arthur Krim was another. And there were many others, but um, there was just, they happened to be key people. Lou Wasserman was another one. He, he was the head of uh, MCA out in uh, Hollywood. Uh, they were his key financial people that, that he, he depended upon for financial support. And through, through them and through his association with Abe Fortas, he had named to the uh, Supreme Court as justice in the Supreme Court, yet he still kept him on as his own personal counselor. And, and, and that, even just that fact there alone, shows, illustrates how he had compromised this, this uh, the whole Constitution approach to the United, you know, the, of the United States the separation of powers. He's got a Supreme Court justice now acting as his own personal counselor. And, and the process of doing this was a key person in setting up with Johnson the, the U.S. involvement in the Six-Day War in, in June of 1967, a war that Israel tried to portray as being started by Egypt, then called the United Arab uh, Republic, UAR, uh, in, in conjunction with uh, Syria and Jordan. They tried, Israel tried to portray that as something that they had started, but yet the facts are that it was Israel which started that war. And the result of that war was they greatly expanded the boundaries of Israel taking on new lands, which have to this day not been returned to Palestine. Uh, and in the, one of the key pieces of that war was when Johnson ordered Israel to attack his own ship. Now this comes as close as you can get, I think, to an unthinkable thought, unspeakable, unthinkable thought. How could a president of the United States order an ally, a supposed ally, to attack his own ship? And for what reason? The idea seems absurd, doesn't it? Yeah. But, but and you have to understand, in his deluded mind, 
You, you, people don't factor this in sufficiently. That that he, this man was hurt. He was the hurt puppy by this point. He was having psychotic attacks, randomly and and uh, frequently. And it's all in my books, especially the second book. Uh, so you, without factoring that in, well, it makes no sense whatsoever. But when you factor that in, then it makes sense. And then you can understand how this would have happened and, and how he thought that by, by showing the, uh, his Jewish con constituency in New York and, uh, and these other places, that he was out to, to save Israel, then he could he could leverage that into uh, you know uh, a political advantage. That that was within that was that was his whole uh, game plan at that point. That he he would he would rush to Israel's side. He would attack he would attack uh, Egypt and and the others and enter the United States into another war over there. It's all laid out in the book how he did this and. You know, it's there for people to uh, look at and say, you know, does this make sense or not? But the point, though, is that there is nothing else that does make sense about that. That, the, and by the way, the I, I've gotten considerable support from um, survivors of that attack on the USS Liberty. In brief, I'll just, if we have the time. Yeah, sure, go for it. Okay. Okay, uh, as part of that war, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had it, and, and it was ordered basically by, it could only have come from, from Johnson through McNamara and the Joint Chiefs to order the spy ship that was then in port in Abidjan, uh, the Gold Coast, or the Ivory Coast, pardon me, the Ivory Coast of Africa. Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory, or whatever it is. Okay, that was that ship was was down there, uh, going through um, a um, maintenance. It was supposed to be a four or five day period, but it was only halfway through. But the, but they got the order that they had to take it out of maintenance and get it up to the uh, Mediterranean Sea, six thousand miles away. So in the middle of the night, they sent out the, the uh, shore patrol, rounded up all the sailors and all the bars and the hotels around there, and got them back on the ship and, and put that ship back in, in the water in the, in the um, Atlantic, southern Atlantic, headed north to uh, Rota, Spain first at full speed. It was, it was, its top speed was 18 knots, and it was going 18 knots the whole way up there. And they got up there and they, they took on more provisions. They, they, they added uh, NSA tech technicians and, and sailors, uh, uh, also um, linguists, to, 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 the, to the ship and, and sailed it on across the, uh, the whole length of the Mediterranean, another 2,000 miles, full speed. It took them two weeks finally, to, to get the ship in position. In the meantime, we find out that there had been another ship, the Jose Valdez, had similarly equipped 
uh, spy ship sailing right through that same exact area, and it sh- and it went on through and on on and it went on back to Norfolk after that. In the meantime, they passed in the night <laughs> out in the Mediterranean. Here's here's the the USS Liberty going full speed out out to a, a, an area of the. Uh, the Mediterranean, just off the Sinai Peninsula, for the very purpose of being attacked. While the other ship, a similar ship, was going the opposite direction, they passed in the night, and and the other one could lumber it on, on all the way back to Norfolk. The reason was because there were a number of reasons. First of all, the the Jose Valdez was not a USS warship. It was a USNS, and that meant it was not armed, it was not considered a warship per se. But they were both spy ships. Whereas the other one was a warship, and any act of war against it would be an act of war. Whereas that wouldn't apply to the other. Okay, so it, it, uh, the, the, also it had a, a nice name, you know, so that in the future, Remember the Liberty could be considered almost like remember the Maine, remember the Alamo, remember Pearl Harbor. It was all because of the name and the fact that it was a, a warship. Now, it was a warship, uh, true, but it only had four guns on it, four 50-millimeter uh, um, uh, machine guns that were basically enough to keep pirates from boarding the ship, but it was not enough to defend it in you know, an attack of any sort by, you know, airplanes and t- torpedo boats and so forth. The point I'm getting to is that after all of that, they put that ship out there, and as soon as it got there the next morning, it was attacked mercil- mercilessly by Israel, and, and first with fighter jets that had the Star of David Painted out, so that it couldn't be a, couldn't be identified. They they came at it with with uh, all kinds of artillery and uh, cannons, machine guns, and and even um, napalm to burn it. It was there was a real attack. It was not just a strafing thing that the captain allegedly had been warned might happen. Well, it was much more than that. It it was it was a deadly attack. It, the first round killed at least 10 sailors on the top decks as they were sunbathing, not expecting anything, of course. They were just out. They thought it was routine patrol at that point. Well, not exactly that. They had an indication on that high-speed, uh, you know, um, trip up from Africa and around the Horn and all, all that, um, that it was something more. But the point is, they really didn't think we were going to be attacked. And and the first attack took out all of the uh, transmitters and for the communications, except for one. One transmitter had been down when the attack occurred, and therefore the heat-seeking missiles did not hit its antenna. And so, therefore, it was still operational, even though it was offline at the time. Well, the, the sailors quickly rigged up a, a, uh, a wire that, that would 
and enable them to get signals out, and SOS and Mayday kind of signals. And they managed, within a half an hour, under fire, to go out and do that. And other ships in the area on the Sixth Fleet knew that it was in big trouble, that it was being attacked. They wanted to, to go after it. And, in fact, they did, twice. They sent sorties of fighter jets out to protect the Liberty, and in both cases, they were recalled. Who, who recalled them? Who would possibly do that? Well, it was Lyndon Johnson, twice. said, I don't give a damn if the ship goes to the bottom of the ocean and takes all the sailors with it. I will not embarrass an ally. Here's a guy that you have to remember now. He was, he's in a series of psychotic episodes where he's losing his mind. And that's exactly what was going on. It's, it's, um, you know, very disturbing to even think about this stuff. And and I'm sorry to report to you that this is what happened. But that's that's what happened, and and I have plenty of evidence to back that up. Yeah. And uh, anyway, the 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 uh, obvious order. That Lyndon Johnson had given the uh, Israeli military leadership was to sink his own ship. And when that didn't happen, Lyndon Johnson got very upset. And, and, and he, he was quoted. And I'm talking about people who quoted him now. Not, not me, some schmuck that just wrote this book. No, it wasn't me. It was admirals. One was Lawrence Geese and, and, uh, and William Martin, who, who were admirals on the Sixth Fleet. They were the ones who said this. They were the ones who said that Lyndon Johnson recalled those wings. And that, that was the term he used. Recall the wings. I don't care if the, ship's, if the ship goes to the bottom of the ocean and takes everyone with it. I will not embarrass an ally. As, as absurd as that sounds, that came not from me. That came from two U.S. admirals. And a third U.S. admiral, Thomas Moore, who had been the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff investigated this and, and, and said the same thing. So when you have these U.S. Navy admirals saying this, somebody's got to listen. This is what happened. This is not just some story that I dreamed up. Hmm. It, it leads you to uh, this dead end. I mean, that's the only explanation. That's the only reasonable explanation. Johnson had ordered his own ship attacked, and, and not just attacked, but to be sunk purposely, specifically, to take it to the bottom of the ocean. And when that torpedo hit it, oh, by the way, I, never, I missed, I didn't go back to that. After that initial attack, then the torpedo, torpedo boats came out, and, and they tried to shoot torpedoes in the side of it, and four of them missed. The fifth one... And this even really gets even more bizarre at this point, because there are rumors that that fifth torpedo came not from an Israeli torpedo boat, but that it came from a United States submarine against its own sister ship. Hmm. Now, that's a rumor that yeah. I, think, I think is pretty solid, but I'm not going to come out and say that that is fact. And why can't I do that? Because those, those uh, documents 
that that have to anything to do with the USS Liberty have all been relegated to 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 the vaults. They're top secret. They cannot. And then, and what the only information that has been released has been heavily redacted, with everything blacked out in many pages and you know big sections of each of, uh, of many pages blacked out because they don't the government and the navy and whatever the people in charge do not want that information to be available to not just us citizens but even congress see congress can't even get to this that's how delicate this is this is this is a subject that no one wants to to be talked about okay yeah. and for me to even be talking about it is believe me it's um <laughs> It's with some trepidation. Did you, ever, did you ever get any bad reactions or people threatening you? I've had some indirect kind of uh, stuff happen, but nothing that I can say yeah. specifically with you know, regard to uh, any particular person. Yeah. Uh, just a lot of idiotic phone calls and stuff. So yeah. So so now, how uh, for the listeners? How do they? Um, Get a hold of your books, and get a hold of you. Well, I uh, I can be reached at uh, th- through my website. I have uh, t- a, a website for the first book is simply lbjmastermind uh, dot com. The second book is lbjcolossus.com. So either one of those can will lead you to a, a thing where uh, a menu where you can contact the author, uh, or you can simply write me at um, Phil F. Nelson. Phil F. is in Frank Nelson at hotmail.com. More direct way. Uh, also, my books are available on uh, well through all bookstores and through uh, th- through Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I also have a, a deal where if people, if anybody would want a signed copy or inscribed copy, they can contact me and and uh, we can do it that way. That the instructions for that are within uh, my website uh, domains. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.